0: life is story fans just wanted to let you know that we had some audio difficulties throughout the first minute or two of this podcast and i edited it out the best that i could but don't let that keep you from a great interview that happens after that uh with abdu murray so uh thank you for understanding hello and welcome to the life is story podcast i'm josh Olds, and today my guest is abdu murray He's the North American director for the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, along with, uh, well, I think a lot of other things.
1: I, yeah, hi, Josh. Uh, I'm actually not the North American director anymore. I'm the senior vice president. There's oh, another what? guy who's the North American director now. Okay. So
0: I wanna, well, I, yeah. I tell you what, I, I was looking at your bio at a couple different places, and I saw both, and I didn't know which one was most current, so I picked the wrong oh, one. Yeah, Yeah. No,
1: okay.
0: So we're talking to you today um, because of the book that you've written with Ravi called Seeing Jesus from the East. Uh, so welcome to the program. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about this book.
1: Oh, Thanks, Jeff, for having me on. I'm excited to talk about this book.
0: Yeah, let's, let's just jump just, I think, right into the heart of the conversation and, and just, and I don't mean this to be an antagonistic question, but... I think for a lot of American Christians in the West they're asking why why is this the perspective that we should even consider?
1: Well um, a couple of reasons why Westerners really should care about how Easterners see Jesus is first if, if you don't understand Jesus in his Eastern context then you really won't understand Jesus in any context um, the, the, the reason is because Jesus lived, breathed, did his ministry, mm-hmm. Exists a certain way, or this phrase is puzzling to me. Well, it's puzzling to you because you're not from the East, but if you understand uh, the context or the, the way in which Easterners speak to each other, suddenly I think things will become more enriched and enlightening, um, and you'll get a better picture of Jesus and to all of humanity in the most important and pressing times of, uh, of history. But the second reason is that Jesus addressed issues that we in the west in the 21st century west are still wrestling with and he 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 wrestled with them and he actually provided solutions for them in a context where it was even more difficult than in our day for those solutions to take sort of uh the the outside christian world, outside of the christian world they think of jesus as this sort of well-meaning but now kind of outdated culturally specific product of his time and that's great but we're a little more enlightened today. We have different issues today. And while he might have taught us some morals back in the day that we could have used, he's irrelevant today. Well, the reality is he couldn't be more relevant today because he addressed issues today in a way to shape and change his own culture. And if he can change his own culture, I think he could help to change ours.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it's just, it's just very hard for Western Christians I mean, it's hard for anybody, uh, but Western Mm -hmm. Christians, I think, in particular, just to be able to see outside of their own perspective. And I I think especially just with the way the way that church history is is presented, um, we have a very we we think when we think of when I say we, I think of the American, the Western church, we Mm -hmm. really just kind of go back to European Christianity and have a hard time going back further than that. And uh, when we could see see this, you know, seeing Jesus from the east, one of the one of the comments that I got was, "Well, is this about is this about mysticism? Is this Jesus as a guru? Um, how do you how do you counteract something like that?"
1: Yeah, so I, I got a comment. It said it was, it was about mysticism, and then there was a bit of a, a break there. Uh, I didn't hear the rest of the question. Um, is this about mysticism? Is there was there more to that question? Uh,
0: just just that I, I feel like that some people that I talked to when they just hearing the concept of the book, not really the concept of the book, but just the yeah. the title, um, ah. was like you know, is this is this about mysticism? Is this you know, they they, they weren't seen really? as like getting Jesus back to his roots, but sort of seeing Jesus being portrayed as uh, a mystic or a guru. How do, you, how do you counteract that view of oh well, this is what it means if you see Jesus being Eastern?
1: Yeah, sure, absolutely. And, and this is interesting because uh, this is such a good question because, you know, Robbie has an entire chapter. I co-wrote the book with Robbie Zacharias, and he has an entire chapter where his entire point is, even if you look at the mystics of the East, The gurus themselves need a savior. And so he's pointing out that the mysticism that is often associated with the East isn't itself enough uh, because we need something that's not mystic, something that's based in the real, based in actual history, based in actual interaction with humanity that isn't based on esoterica. Now, Jesus was mystical in the sense that supernatural. He talked about the, the meaning of the supernatural with the natural, but he wasn't a uh, sort of a mystic in the sense of Eastern philosophies that embrace contradiction or Eastern philosophies that tell you that you have an inner divinity inside of you. No, Jesus's message is thoroughgoingly Eastern in the cultural way in which he speaks, but it's not Eastern in the sense of the religious way in which we come to think of, you know, a pantheistic worldview, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism, for other different pantheistic ideas. So that's not what's going on here. What Jesus does is he speaks in an Eastern cultural way. In fact, one of the comments I saw uh, on social media recently about the book came from an Indian, uh, actually two um, uh, comments, and the Indian, said, one Indian man said is that every Indian should be reading this book uh, because this book pays homage to the culture of being Indian, yet it, it speaks specifically to a Christian context, theologically and even historically. So I think we can, and, and me coming from the Middle East, you know, in terms of my background and my heritage, um, uh, Jesus' Easternness is the story of, inherently, of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not a white uh, faith. And I think that you, you pointed out earlier that people often harken back to European Christianity when they think church history. They think of, you know, doesn't go back much further than the 17 or 1600s uh, or the 1500s where the Protestant Reformation happened. Well, there is a history long before that. And when you look at Jesus in his original context in the New Testament, in the earliest documents, you see a specific Easternness. So I think the characterization, Josh, is that people think of Christianity Imperialistic religion, and Jesus is the icon of white imperialism. The reality is that it wasn't the white West that influenced Christianity such that it became a tool to oppose brown people. It's that it's an olive skinned religion, one that every page is sort of soaked in the olive oil and in the spices and the curries of the time. And it is the olive skinned Eastern religion that changed the Roman Empire, that changed the West. For the good. Uh, The idea of equality, for example, wasn't even an idea that uh, ancient uh, pre-Christian Romans would have even given shrift to. They would have thought of it as not unlaughable. They would have thought of it as unthinkable. Christian message that we're all equally made in God's image, all equally sinners, but all equally offered redemption. That is what started the whole idea of human equality in the first place. And so I think recapturing that easternness. The way Jesus was a traditionalist, yet he broke with tradition, um, and he changed the, the West forever. I think that's what we need to do, is to recapture that Easternness of Jesus.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it, this, is, this is interesting to me, uh, because I feel like if, if you are from the West, if you're from Western culture, and you're reading this book, uh, it's really going to open up for you a cultural perspective that you haven't seen but if you are from an eastern culture and you are a christian but you're living in a western culture even if you're living in an eastern culture um there is the tendency to see christianity even if you are from an eastern background um with a western lens particularly Mm. if you are living here in the west uh have you Mm. run in have you run into people like that um, that have you know, Eastern heritage but live in the West now, that, that have been like, this ties together my faith and my culture. Because there are so many people uh, today that are from the East, but they really do see Christianity as you know, the white man's religion.
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, I'll confess this to you, Josh, before I became a Christian, you know, I come from, my my heritage is Lebanese and I come from a Muslim background. At the time, what I would think to myself is the reason Islam was attractive is because it recaptures the ancientness, the actual easternness of God's uh, revelation to humanity. Yes, it's a universal religion, but it spoke to me as an Arab, as it were. Uh, And so I rejected Christianity for a number of reasons, but one of the primary reasons was it lost any authenticity, is that once it left the Middle East, it became this homogenized sort of vanilla um, white thing that's out there. And I thought of it as a white religion uh, myself, but I still know people who come from the East who even have a nominal Christian background who might think of it as, well, you know, yeah, it's a nominal background I have, but it's not really Eastern um, as I'd like it to be. Uh, in fact, I know people who are Western who turn to the Oprah and the Chopra and the New Age and the New Spirituality because they want an Easternness uh, to their, and an exoticness to their faith. Uh, and they fail to see Christianity as being that. Um, But I'll tell you is that when you look at the pages of the New Testament, when you look at the way in which Jesus interacted and you see some specifically Eastern things, he's surprising, uh, uh, in the way he's progressive in, in the sense that he treats racism and misogyny and these kind of things in such an amazing way, uh, yet he, uh, for his time, yet he's also a traditionalist as well and he respects the Eastern, um, uh, desire to uphold tradition. But to give you an example of something that was interesting to me is that when I first read the Bible for the first time to really, not for the first time, but in my search to really try to understand it, I came across the, a parable that um, at first I thought, this is unfair. This is what their God, your God is like. And then I understood the Eastern roots of it, and they jumped out at me, and I wasn't even a Christian yet. It's the parable of the generous employer that you see in Matthew chapter 20. You know, the story goes is that there's a master of the vineyard, and he needs to hire day laborers. And those and just like today, you know, there's guys waiting outside the Home Depot. There's drywallers, there's rough carpenters, there's plumbers, there's whatever, who are looking for a job for that day. And then a contractor comes out and says, okay, I'll pick you 15 guys uh, to come work with me. The rest of the guys, like 30 guys, get have to go home, uh, dejected, and sort of like, well, no work today. Well, that happened back in Jesus' day as well. So this master of the vineyard, who is the proxy for God in the parable, comes and he hires men to work in his vineyard. Now they're all out there waiting, holding out hope that someone will dignify them and honor them with work. And this is important because Jesus lived and operated in an honor and shame culture. That's a culture where the appearance of honor and the avoidance of the appearance of shame is really important. Truth is important as well, but really what's important is the, uh, the, the personal feeling of and the public perception of honor. So these guys, some guys get hired and they agree with uh, the master of the vineyard for a denarius, for one, uh, for one denarius uh, uh, wage for the day's labor. Well, the master of the vineyard goes back a second time and a third time and a fourth time and of course a fifth time. And he finds people still waiting around to get work. Now, this is unusual because usually they would have just gone home. Because they'd have been done for the day. Uh, the, 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 the guys don't usually come uh, a second, third, fourth, fifth time to get more laborers. Usually they pick once and then everyone goes home, again, dejected, feeling the dishonor of not being able to support their families. Yet the master finds people there over and over again, and he hires them over and over again. Now, the cool part of the story is that he actually pays them all the same wage. So the guys who work for an hour get paid the same amount that the guys who worked all day. Now, inherently, that seems unfair. Like, wait a minute, that's unfair. But that's not what this parable is really about. It's so multifaceted. And then I remember reading this and feeling the unfairness of the whole thing. But then I, re- I hearkened back to my Eastern uh, understanding of honor and shame. What the master of the vineyard did was that he honored the fact that these men were holding out hope that someone would dignify them with a day's worth of work so they could go back to their family in the honor of saying, I did this, I worked today, and I earned this for us. Uh, instead of going back at home in the shame of saying no food today. And what he did was because they held out hope the whole day, he credited it, their hope and their faith that someone would honor them. He credited it as if it was work. And so he paid them the same amount of money. Now, that's interesting to me because that harkens right back to Abraham, where we find that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Jesus is operating in an honor-shame culture in an Eastern context, makes that evident to us. Also, though, we see the conundrum of the idea of, can God be sovereign and humans have free will, answered in this parable? Because the guys who got, who got paid the same amount of money who who worked the whole day but got paid the same amount of money as the guys who worked an hour. They say, wait a minute, you owe us more money. We worked longer. And what does the master of the vineyard say? He says, friend, didn't you agree with me? In other words, didn't you exercise your free will to agree with me that this is a fair wage? And can't I be generous to whom I choose to be generous? His sovereignty. So you see human free will in the negotiation and God's sovereignty in who he picks and who he hires all interacting together. So that's an East, so that you have an Eastern honor shame culture, you have a Western sort of philosophical conundrum uh, being addressed at the same time, and if we understand Jesus in his Eastern context we 'll see parables like this come to life so the Easterner can get his mind and his heart satisfied, and the Westerner can have a richer understanding of who Jesus actually
0: is mm-hmm. yeah, when I was reading through that part of the book. Um... I had really never looked at it there with the context of sovereignty and free will, so that really mm-hmm. you know, I think changed my perspective on it and helped me see see that parable in a new way. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that and you bring up the idea of the Eastern honor shame perspective versus the Western sort of guilt innocence perspective. Can, can you talk mm-hmm. just a little, a little bit about that for listeners who may not be as familiar with that concept of um, what? What difference does that make, and especially coming, most listeners coming from a Western perspective, um, yeah. what what difference is there between the Western perspective and the Eastern?
1: Now, I will say this is that it's an excellent question, but I think that the, the – the, well, I will say this. Is that as we see time progress, and even now in our current cultural perspective, we're seeing the differences get smaller and smaller. But there is still differences. So here's what the, 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 basically the difference is: is sociologists and physiologists will talk about the differences in the sort of way in which authority and morality is enforced in different cultures. So every culture basically just has the, you know there's, uh, human beings have an innate sense of morality of right and wrong. They express it differently and they enforce it differently. So in the West, we have what's called an innocence and guilt culture. We focus on innocence and we focus on guilt. If I am free, if I have done nothing wrong, then I am inherently innocent. If I do something wrong, I become guilty. Now, in the, in the West, we have sort of an internal locus of uh, enforcement of morality. So if I do something wrong, then what that means is that I'll have an internal sense of guilt, uh, my conscience will plague me, and then I'll want to fix it, and I'll want to make amends for it, and I'll do something to make up for what I've done, and so I'll sort of like get rid of my guilt and become innocent if I make up for it with some action of some kind. In, so that's an innocent guilt culture. There's an internal locus of moral control. Um, in the wet in the East, they're just as moral as everybody else is, but the the, the enforcement of morality is external. So. If I do something, uh, I, I, I'll pick something in the East. I'll do something that conforms to the social mores of that culture because I want to do that which brings honor to the community. It's, more, it's less individualistic than the West. It's more communal. So what I do affects my family. What, I, what my family does affects the community. What the community does affects the entire nation. So in order to avoid the appearance of shame, I'll do that which the community thinks is honorable. And um, and then the community can actually say, well, what you've done here is shameful, and then I become a shameful person. So the the biggest distinction here is that in in the West, if I go against the rules, I have done something bad. And in the East, if I go against the rules, I have become someone bad which means that the, the change that needs to occur in order to fix it is not just do something to make up for it. It's actually get a new identity altogether. Now, you can see the way in which the gospel message is actually bilingual on this, because the gospel message is about Jesus, his imputed innocence, his imputed righteousness comes to us so that our sin, our guilt can be judged on the cross in him he takes on our guilt and then transfers or imputes that doesn't transfer he imputes his guilt to uh, his innocence to us so that sin is punished and um mercy is given that's a very forensic sort of judicial way of looking at it in in the east there's also the idea that jesus bears our shame for our bad actions and it's you know it's as if he takes on our identity before god as shame-filled sinners, and we take a, his identity as a honored one before God the Father so that we are not judged as shameful. Uh, so you can see the way the Bible is bilingual on this. Um, so there is big differences in terms of the locus of morality and the perception of immorality, uh, which factors into the gospel. But one thing, Josh, I think that's important for us to point out is that in the West, and this is another reason why Westerners should care how Easterners see Jesus, in the West, we're quickly becoming more and more like an honor and shame society. I mean, I think about, think about this, we have this phrase now, the cancel culture. Um, can- can- canceling happens where, let's say you're a rock star or you're a sports uh, um, a star or an actress or whatever it might be, you're an author. And you say something that happens to run afoul of whatever morality is culturally accepted today as the accepted morality. Uh, if you go against that, people don't engage in reasoned debate anymore. What they do is they cancel you. They shame you out of existence. They stop buying your records. They'll make fun of you. They'll call you names. They'll heap insults. No one engages with the merits of your idea. They simply engage in ad hominem and also try to ruin careers. And you can see countless, countless examples, whether you're on the right or you're on the left, the other side will always get shamed. And so we're seeing this more and more is that we have an honor-shame culture. Uh, it's in a, a bit of a nascency here in the in the West, but it is growing quickly, which means that we ought to pay attention, I think, to the ancient Easterner from Nazareth who lived and dealt with honor-shame cultures where he understood the collective and he valued the collective, but never at the expense of the individual.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting because – Um, Do you think that's a product of just the world becoming a smaller place with technology uh, and with more immigration that that these cultures no longer seem quite so divided? Or what do you think is the the history in the Western culture kind of becoming more honor-shame oriented?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting that you, you asked that because uh, one can only speculate, but I do think that there is a level to which globalization, whether it's economic globalization and you have travel, and people interacting with other cultures a little bit more, but you also have an increased um, uh, communicat- communication, say the word, uh, between cultures so readily because of social media and because of technology. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so I think you do have that. I think there, there are definite sociological and technological factors that factor into it. But I think that those sociological and technological factors are basically the, the carriers. There's a medium through which I think the human condition is uh, portrayed across the world, uh, which, which is to say that um, uh, now as opinions become more readily accessible, um, and facts and misinformation, both information and misinformation, gets, um, uh, get disseminated equally fast. Um, we, have, we no longer engage in the debate because um, we take offense so easily, which is, by the way, a very Eastern thing. Offense is a big issue. Um, and now, what is, what is the, the cardinal thing that shuts down conversation in the West? You offended me. If you offend me in some way or you insult me, um, well then I've shut down all reasonable debate now. So if you make a comment that is perfectly legitimate or maybe steps over a line unintentionally in terms of uh, it suggests that you might offend some some, some group, um, we use the word offense to shut it all down. Uh, And and we don't give you a chance to explain yourself or even apologize Um, and uh, it becomes almost irreversible. Uh, but I do think it's because of technology. I think it's because of globalization. And I'll say this. I think the West has picked up on something that the East has mastered. And it's that if I say I'm offended, if I say um, that uh, you have attempted to bring shame and dishonor to me, how dare you do such a thing? Well, that works really well. The Easter, Easterners, I come from an Eastern background. We're the masters of the guilt trip. We're the original originers originators of the guilt trip, and the West is saying, "Oh, this works," and therefore, I think we have this uh, this phenomenon.
0: Mm-hmm. It brings that like level of like it, it kind of makes this, these big concepts very personal on how they affect the, the individual. Um, Indeed, this, this is a more I think it's a more personal question for me in the context that I do ministry in, uh, but I'm I'm the pastor of a primarily Asian congregation. And mm-hmm. one, one of the struggles that I see in my congregation, and we, we kind of touched on it already, is, is how to reconcile an Eastern cultural background with Western cultural Christianity. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, I, I see this you know, every year. It's an annual conversation about how do we celebrate certain cultural holidays, or do we modify these for Christian expression? Um, and, and some of these things are religious differences that should be done, and others of them are cultural and mm-hmm. so, as someone who has grown up, I think with with somewhat of a similar background, what advice do you have to my congregation for navigating the challenges of embracing their Christianity but also embracing their Easternness?
1: Wow, that's a great question. And I think that the, that the advice I would say is this: is that what 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 is if you're a committed Christian, what becomes the rule of faith and practice for us? And this is the, the obvious question is the scriptures themselves. They are the standard. And the reason they're the standard is because they do speak cross-culturally. So they do allow for the effort to actually respect various cultures, um, uh, while at the same time saying there are certain aspects of various cultures that aren't biblical. Um, so uh, example, we have some, some, some very serious um, uh, things within the culture of um, uh, the West that I would say aren't necessarily biblical or there's so there's a difference there's, there's this is between unbiblical and a biblical so I think something's unbiblical when it goes against the scripture when it directly contradicts something but this means I call a biblical which means that the Bible doesn't really address this and, it, and what you're doing is not inconsistent with the Bible uh, uh, you know so celebrating a certain kind of cultural holiday and I'm not burst up on Chinese New Year and what that's all about for example uh, there's a spiritual connotation to that. There may be that I'm not aware of. But celebrating a, a, a new year or a, a, an important cultural holiday um, isn't, isn't, to me, unbiblical. Uh, uh, independence Day, American Independence Day, celebrating that. Uh, there's nothing, I mean, inherently religious about celebrating the independence of your, of your country, except to say we give glory to God for, uh, for the freedoms that we have, and for the victories that were won, uh, and these kind of things. So you can, you can baptize it as it were, but it's not inherently you know, religious in any specific sense. It could be in a, in a general sense. So I guess the guideline I would have is that examine your cultural um, aspects in light of the scriptures. So if I were to take a look at American individualism, American individualism is a good thing. And Jesus championed individualism, but he never championed individualism to the extent that it's, it's your life. There's nothing, you know, you can, you can do whatever you want, how you affect your family, how you affect the people around you doesn't matter. And that's sort of a very common Western. I would even say specifically American view of things. It's like, well, it's your life. You can decide what you want to decide. And, you know, no one can tell you what to say, think, believe and all these things. And while that's inherently true as a matter of right, Is it right to do it? And is it biblical? Because the Bible does talk about honoring your father and your mother and honoring tradition and making sure not to bring uh, a dishonor and a shame. And that uh, Paul even talks about how all of our actions affect each other, that there is um, this kind of a thing that we have to make sure we're aware of. So I think that even Americans have to deal with this. Um, uh, whether they're from Asian backgrounds or Middle Eastern backgrounds or African backgrounds or European backgrounds is, does your desire for individualism uh, always express itself in biblical ways? So I would say the Bible becomes your standard for this. Now, if there is a tradition, you know, in an Asian context, for example, and again, I'm not saying this happens at your church or any specific church, but if there is a veneration of ancestors such that, there is, I know ancestor worship is a big part of, uh, uh, of Eastern uh, religious uh, expression, whether it's Japanese or Chinese or whatever it might be. Well, the problem is, is that reverence for your ancestors is perfectly biblical. Worship of your ancestors and asking for guidance from your ancestors is unbiblical. And so I think that, that that's an example where if you, if you were a new Christian from an Asian background, you have to take in, what does the Bible say about these things? and you have to. We have to jettison those things which are which are unbiblical, but we can maintain those things which are inherently biblical as well. So I think that's the, the, the tough part, is um, uh, it becomes an individualized basis or a culture-by-culture-specific basis. So, but, but, but take heart, though, because the Bible does not require you to jettison culture. It does not require you to become ego Western. In fact, I would say that is the biggest challenge, honestly, is for Westerners to embrace the Easternness of Jesus, as opposed to Easterners embracing the Westernness of Jesus.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that answer. Um, well, our, our time is up, and I want to close, but I would, I'd be remiss if I didn't end with this. And um, I, the book was written by you and Ravi, but I, I know that uh, Nabil Qureshi, um, kind of as the brainchild of this book. Uh, mm-hmm. He was the one who wanted to write it. How did knowing him and wanting to honor his legacy affect the writing of this book?
1: Well, it did a lot, and uh, just to, in a short uh, synopsis of this is that this was Nabil's idea. He approached Ravi and wanted to address Jesus' easternness from, uh, from a former Muslim perspective, but also a translated Indian perspective. And so when Nabil passed, Um, Robbie called me and asked me to be a part of it and immediately I wanted to do that. Uh, Nabil and I have had so many conversations about the easternness of Jesus, about the way in which the honor-shame paradigm actually works out in the Bible but also can apply in the West. Uh, In fact, this was before when Nabil told me his idea for this book, I was sort of uh, downtrodden at first. I'm like, oh shoot, I want to write that book. Um, But but, um, uh, he lives out in this book in quite a few ways. In fact, um, Not every chapter that he was going to write is a chapter I ended up writing, but the honor-shame chapter, the rewards-of-sacrifice chapter, and even with Sprinkled in the other chapters that I chose to write that um, uh, were sort of of my idea specifically, um, they um, still are infused with conversations I've had with Nabil, and Ravi honors Nabil through uh, his story as well and the things that he talks about in his chapters. So Nabil was the progenitor of this book and uh, his ideas and his expressions and his conversations with us. Uh Ravi as an older mentor, me as a bigger brother, um, uh they live on in there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Nabil was a great guy. I had the chance to interview him on this podcast um, I think about mm. a year um before his diagnosis and had kind of followed mm. his journey all the way through that and you know, deeply mm-hmm. saddened and still still think of him. Um on the occasion, pretty much any time that I am doing any sort of apologetics work uh, in the Muslim world, um, I'm drawing yeah. on what I've learned from him. Uh, so thankful thankful for his legacy and thankful to see it continuing on uh, in your ministry and uh, in, in the lives of other people. Uh, so okay, be, uh, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to be on the podcast. I mean, I don't know what else you're doing uh, in this time of quarantine. Uh, I think you're in, you're in Michigan, right? So you guys are still pretty much shut down for a while. Uh, I'm we host. we are yeah
1: we are but uh, we're doing a lot though a lot of writing and a lot of uh, a lot of interviews and mm-hmm. uh, media opportunities to do ministry all over the world so uh, through digital means yeah
0: yeah well redeem the time so uh, thank redeem. you thank you for being on the podcast I really appreciate it um, again the book is Seeing Jesus from the East by Ravi Zacharias and Abdul Murray it released uh, just about a week ago I think at the end of April and it is a um. A, a perhaps a different perspective on Jesus than you have than you have read before, and it's a perspective that is sorely sorely needed here in the Western world.